What's up, reality? How you guys doing this morning? Oh, you guys missed the part where he uh, told you my last name was Sebanda. Everybody say Sebanda. <laughs> now, in case you are uh, um, uh, geographically challenged when it comes to accents and locations, that is not an SF last name. Come on, somebody. <laughs> That's because your boy is from uh, Zimbabwe. If you've never been in Zimbabwe, it's in Africa. And uh, you kind of fly about 10,000 miles, you get to Wakanda, you hang it left, and we're right next to it. You know what I'm saying? Let's go. But uh, uh, before we have this conversation, um, I want to, to set expectation around our engagement. I want to tell you guys um, a few things about Zimbabweans. The first thing uh, about Zimbabweans is that um, we love uh, free stuff. Everybody say free stuff. Somebody asked me, and they say, what's your favorite food? I said, free food. They were like, all right. I promise you on my, on my tombstone, it's going to say where the food was free there. We would be. I still remember, I'm old enough, I'm dating myself, but when Starbucks rolled out the free Wi-Fi back then, I couldn't afford a laptop, but I went and I sat down that day, and I just took in the free Wi-Fi. I was like, come on, if it's free, I'm there, right? But, but the second thing I want to say is uh, because my hating context is Africa, but right now I'm a U.S. citizen, so I am the truest, right, take a picture, right? This is what an actual African-American looks like, right? African-American. Now, in the crux, because I exist in this bicameral space, I got to give you guys the, the rules of engagement in communication. The first thing is that the African aspect of who I am is going to pull you into communal dialogue, right? If you've ever seen Africans do anything, we do it as a party. It's all together, you know what I'm saying? So I'm not here to teach you. I'm here to teach with you. We're going to have a conversation because it is a dialogical, you know what I'm saying? And so um, I will say a lot of things that elicit responses from you guys. That's not because I have this pathological need for reaffirmation. No, it's because it is the cultural ilk that informs my a conversation. The second thing, the uh, American part of it then speaks to the simple fact that I'm what you call a hollaback preacher. Come on, somebody, right? <laughs> so I know some of you guys over here, I see a lot of melanin, God bless y'all, and something in between. But I want to tell you guys uh, something really quick, which means if you've ever had a black church fantasy interrupting the preacher while he's preaching, I got you. This is where you do it, right? <laughs> Now, I know you're like, okay, what do I say, right? Get creative with it. Come on, African, preach it somebody. But a simple one, right, for the intermediate folks is my, 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 my. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so if it makes sense, just go with it. You're not disrupting your boy. But no, I really did uh, set a solid foundation because I, I'm, I'm really going to jump into uh, this. I am married. We have no kids yet. We have one doing two weeks. What am I doing here? I don't know. It's just what Enneagram 7s do. But my wife sends her love. She's originally from Zimbabwe as well, but I met her in Texas, and Texans love that. Speaking of which, thank you for the lesson in humility that you guys gave us last week with the 49ers. It is duly noted, but <laughs> praying for you guys. But uh, my wife is incredible. It's what we call an arranged marriage, but, but not in the Zimbabwean context, no. I mean, she arranges everything in my marriage. <laughs> and I show up, I sit down, and I do exactly what I'm told. And I'm happy. You see this happiness? Take notes, somebody, right? <laughs> but she truly does um, send her love, and it honestly is such an honor to be here. Here's why it's such an honor. I know a lot of people say that. It's an honor because there were all these incredible things I'm blown away with. You guys are a cutting-edge church. You guys are right on the bleeding edge of the conversations that the Lord wants to have and is waiting for his bride to have. But that's, 
that's not the, the, the greatest compliment for this house. It's not even the sense of community that everybody from uh, Pastor Jess to, to Janet to Lord Tariq to the prayer team. It's, it's not the sense of community that they foster. This morning in worship, I was wrecked because I realized that the greatest compliment I can say about this house is the simple fact that God is in your midst. You guys have created a space where his spirit is seen and loved and appreciated. And everything about the excellence, everything about the conversations, everything about the cutting edge of your aspect uh, lends to that fact. And um, I know that would not be possible if it was not for a leadership and a pastor that leans in and creates spaces because uh, culture bleeds from the top down. And so I just wanted to tell you guys, I want to put you all on something, right? It is very simple. That God is going to take such a heart and take such a man and platform him and make him a leader and a voice and a pastor to a generation. But before that happens, I want you guys first on that, send this man the good emails, right? Not the mess that we get on Monday mornings, but I want you guys to support him, pray for him, send him. Wherever Dave is, he pastors, he fosters incredible friendships, and I've been a beneficiary of that. So if you guys don't mind, could you do something which I do not to be weird or anything, but common sense where I come from says that you stand for the things that you honor. If you guys don't mind, could you just stand up and help me honor your pastor and his leadership team for everything that they do? Pastor Dave, I love you, man. You are goals and a Jedi, baby. Come on. I'm going to be just like you. My resurrected body is going to be just like you. But thank you all so much. And while you're at it, could you stay standing for uh, the reading of the word? Every time this word has gone forth, God said, let there be and there was. Every time this word has gone forth, things have changed in my life. And my hope and my prayer, my expectation is that that would be true of you and of who you are. So if you don't mind, um, I'd love uh, Brother Lauren to uh, just come up and lead us through the reading of the word. Then I'm going to say a quick prayer and then we're going to roll. Is that good? My brother. Let's do it. Yes, sir. Revelation. Chapter 5, 6 through 14. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 uh, elders fell down uh, to the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers, prayers of, of the, the saints. saints. Come on. Praise God. Mm. And they sang a new song saying, if you are worthy to make, to take this, you are worthy to take the scroll. Come on. Uh, the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe language people and nation you have made them to be the kingdom and the priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth now listen to this and they looked and they heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. A loud voice they heard saying, worthy Worthy. is the lamb who was slain to receive power power and wealth and wisdom Mm -hmm. and strength 
and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, and in and all of them saying to him who sat on the throne and the lamb to be praised, honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. And the four creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. This is God's word. Praise Amen. God. Amen. Thank you so much. Brother Lauren. Oh, okay. All right. Let's pray. Father, I just come before you and I thank you. Could you guys do me this favor? Could you just put your hand over your heart and just say, come Holy Spirit. Come Spirit of Revelation. Come Holy Spirit. Come blessed teacher. Not words, not concepts, not ideas, but the counsel of heaven. Finding perfect expression through the lips of clay, Father. Without an encounter, Lord, this was just a waste of time. So come. Pull down every wall, Father. Pull down every stronghold. May the violence of the love of God encounter every heart in this place. I just pray for encounter through his words. And may the word mixed with faith bring profiting in their hearts and their lives. May this be the burning bush moment for some of them to where they walk out of those doors and they're never the same. They're better fathers and husbands and bosses and leaders and friends because they have encountered the presence of the Most High. So we say, come, Holy Spirit, and do what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's roll. So I love this title because um, Pastor Dave was like, hey, man, come and uh, do your, 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 your thing, that one conversation that you had. You know, life around a table. I was like, I hadn't named it, but I love that. I love that. But I, I feel like it's something that really rocked me. And so out of that, I, I hadn't even told you this, uh, Pastor Dave, but um, I've essentially just kind of wrote a book, and I'll be bringing it out of there because I felt like it was an incredible uh, conversation. But some context for it is uh, we all exist uh, under the shadow of 2020. Come on, somebody. Um, I don't care who you are or where you're from, nobody came out of 2020 intact, right? It hit us at very visceral levels, and um, one of those spaces was uh, in ministry. And at that time, um, I was the associate pastor at a church in Dallas called the Upper Room, which is a very unique dynamic because uh, the church is not that large by Texas standards, right? It's about 2,000 people a Sunday, but... What's weird about it is that across its social media platforms, it has a reach of about a million people, right? And these people contribute, they tithe, they do all of those things, but they watch it online. So when 2020 hit, obviously in Texas, all 21 days of the pandemic, and afterwards we're done with it, right? It's like, that's what Texas does. There's only two short things in Texas, our playoff chances and the pandemic. The rest of it is... Everything is bigger in Texas. But after that, it transmogrified from something which is a pandemic and an international health situation to a political thing, right? We made it about masks, and then after that, we made it about guns. I don't even know how we tied in everything, but it became one of those things. And so people were looking at the upper room for statements. They're like, what are you saying? What are your stances? And we had to navigate this conversation in a generation to where you only draw a crowd if you draw a line, right? 
there was this very polarizing aspect of what it looks like, and people were saying, what do you guys stand for? You have this influence. You're supposed to be using it. Speak out about, against racial inequality. Speak out against all of those things. And it's easy to navigate these types of conversations within the context of community in spaces and churches like reality, where you, I know for a fact that even if our views differ, but I can lock eyes with you and sense that you love me with the love of God. It is very easy to navigate conversations around a table. But how do you translate that level of intimacy and candor across the cold medium of cameras and social media? How do you communicate the values of something as intimate as connection across the cold medium of phone screens communicating to a sound by generation who have been well-versed in the art of disagreement and misunderstanding? How do you communicate unity to a generation that celebrates disunity? How do you speak about family and communion to a generation whose only identity is found in silos and camps? Well, my pastor with the wisdom of God just went ahead and he was like, you know what? I don't know, but I'm going to make that your problem as associate pastor, right? <laughs> so you make sure that you do not get picketers outside of here. I'm going to come over here and give myself to the ministry of the word and to prayer. I was like, you are a smart man. That is the power of delegation. So what happens is I went to the Lord and I said, Father, in Isaiah 11, you are the spirit. One of the manifestations of your spirit is the spirit not just of wisdom but of counsel tell me what should I do and he led me to uh, this scripture and uh, this scripture is in Psalm 61 verse 1 to 3 and it says hear my cry O Lord attend to my prayer from the ends of the earth I will cry out to you and my heart is overwhelmed lead me to the rock that is higher than I for you have been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy not just my heart it wasn't just my heart that was overwhelmed our entire generation was overwhelmed and it seemed the prescription when we went to the scripture was lead me to the rock that is higher than I. The first thing is when you think of a rock, perspective or height is not the first thing that you think of. You might think of strength, you might think of this. So I found it curious that the benefit of being led to the rock was a higher perspective. And so that's when I was like, okay, Lord, what are you talking about if the perspective is height? And it ties into that scripture, and I'm going to come back to it. But before that, right, I, I, I want to I I give some context to everything about this. And the first thing is that it's something that I wrote down. I don't know if it was original thought or I'd seen it somewhere, but I woke up in, in my prayer time and it's such a resonance on me. And it basically said our tables will become our churches. And so I put that on social media and I was blown away by how many people resonated around that. Our tables will become our churches. And that was the reality of uh, 2020. Everything about the human experience, everything about your understanding of who God is hinges on this simple fact. A smarter man than me, I'm talking about Jedi levels of Pastor Dave uh, levels, once said once upon a time that where purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. If you do not know the purpose of a thing, you will abuse it with the best of intentions, right? If I don't know uh, what this iPad is for and it's just a dark, I will use it to chop vegetables because I don't understand the purpose. So before we can even have conversations around community 
and life around the table. We need to go back to God's original blueprint when he created humanity. What was in the council of the Godhead when he decided to make you and you and you? So we go back into the book of Genesis. And my qualifying statement to this is this simple thing. God is cause and we're effect. God is cause and we're effect. Everything which is fundamentally true about who God is, is true about who we are as humanity divorced from our cultural or social idiosyncrasies. God is the cause or the effect. What am I talking about? In the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he does something pretty curious. From verse 1 to 25, he starts speaking things into existence. He goes straight up Dr. Strange and everything. He's speaking, and all these worlds are coming to pass, right? Inception type of, of dopeness. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible, right? But he does something pretty unique, and it's said over and over. It says he would tell the ocean. He would speak the ocean basically into existence. Then he would tell the ocean to recreate creatures after its kind. And over and over we see this thing kind after its kind. And then when we get to Genesis 1:26, which I feel like is the culmination of all of this, this is what it says. It says, and God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. What God did here, he pulled what my wife pulled. See, my wife can cook. I'm not talking about like mac and cheese, and I say you can cook to speak something into existence. That's not, no. My baby girl can throw down in the kitchen. Come on, somebody. Like, I take pictures, but then I don't post them because I don't want to cause problems in your marriage. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm going to celebrate you, but my baby can throw down. But what she does is she knows that she can cook. And with the knowledge of knowing that you are a savant, it's something comes this calm arrogance that people have, right? So what my wife will do is never ask her to cook if you're hungry, because that will gradually devolve into hunger. because listen, you cannot rush good art. You know what I'm talking about. My wife will take as long as she needs to take to create a masterpiece. And what she will do is towards the end of it, she will call you down and say it's ready. It's not ready, it's deception. She just wants you to see her finish this work. So she'll do all these things and she'll be like, here, try this. And I'll taste it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. She's like, let me taste it. She's like, no, it's it's missing something. And she'll throw something else in there. She'll like, taste this. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Can we eat it now? She's like, no, I feel like it's missing something. I was like, I know you know what you're doing and everything. But then she will take, and finally she'll take like a pinch of salt, and then she will like, with all this intentionality, kind of sprinkle it on top of it. She's like, now it's ready. And I feel like that's essentially what God was doing in creation, right? So he creates this perfect ecosystem. Completely perfect. I'm talking about sanctified smells, sanctified sounds, and all of this. And as the apex, right, to crown the zenith of his creation, he goes, it's missing something. What is it? He says, me and you. So the council of the Godhead says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Think about this. Everything about who you are, your, 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 your faculties for interacting with the world, are they inputs or outputs? Sense. All your senses, touch, taste, right, sight, hearing, they're all inputs. Can you imagine this? He creates an ecosystem of outputs, expressive smells and sounds, and all of them are expressive, right? And himself, the prime expressive being, then he creates us as a being of inputs to enjoy both his creation, but also enjoy him because he is a God of love. 
And when I looked at this, right, it said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And when you look at it in, in English, it seems like it's a redundancy. But when you go back to the original language, the etymology of the words, the word image there is a direct translation from English to American. The word image is form and the word likeness is function. The word image, telem, and the word uh, likeness is damuth. So basically what God was saying is, let us make man in our form to execute our function. So what is the form of God? What does it tell us about? The first thing is, look, think of it this way, right? God is creator, therefore we are creative, right? God is creator, therefore we are creative. God is love, therefore we cannot exist outside the confines of love. But the most incredible thing is that God is community. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune being, he has always existed in community. Therefore, we as human beings cannot exist outside the confines of community. It's impossible. 2020 showed us this because we were a boxed-in generation. God, a creative God, wasteful creation. One time, my wife and I went to the Maldives because we were sevens during the pandemic, and that's what uh, sevens do and everything. And I was blown away because there's little islands and everything, wasteful creativity. Things that people will never see, but when you look at the intricacies of the creation, the water and everything, do you understand that everything about creation echoes the nature of your God? Do you understand the art, the artistry, and the genius that goes into a single snowflake, which is going to be one of millions in a snowstorm, which has no business being in Texas, but when you look at it, a grain of sand, when you go at a granular sub, do you understand that everything that God creates, and you see this in the book of, uh, of, uh, of Deuteronomy when he's giving this, he says everything is both created for form and function. Do you understand that God cares not just about utility, but about aesthetics as well? Everything about nature. That's why I love that nature is called nature because it mirrors the nature of a God of love. The ubiquity of sand, the ubiquity of water, the ubiquity of anything that's natural, leaves, right? The extravagant wastefulness of the creative bounty of God. That a tree can have the most elaborate tree leaves and everything, and every season it sheds that and new things grow in. Do you understand that if you truly understand who your God is, lack will never be anything that means anything to you? We're supposed to live in the abundance of his love and then step out and share that with the people around us. What I love the most about this is when they asked one of the prime thinkers back in the day, one of the church fathers, St. Gregory Fanaziandas, who has the most convicting work on what the Trinity is, when they asked him, can you describe the dynamic of the Trinity? He called it the perichoresis. And what that means is peri means like perimeter, like around. And then choreo, it means to call and answer. And so basically he says the relational dynamic between the Trinity is like a dance. And he called it the perichoresis, and nobody could argue that. And that became the forming and informing theology around the Trinity. And what he was basically saying is if you were to watch the Trinity from a distance, it seems like the three of them are engaged in this eternal dance, both creativity and utility, right? Father in deference to the Son and the Son and the Holy Spirit and there's humility and love. And they have always existed in this context. And from that context, they created us to then become people that create context around us and pull people into the gravity of our sonship and our revelation of his love. 
you understand that we have a son here coming in about two weeks? And do you understand that this son, my son, will never exist outside the confines of the context of my and I and my wife's love? Do you understand that he is going to be born into it? And for the rest of his life, he is going to be covered by it. And whether he chooses to receive it or not, or step outside the parameters of that love, it will never change the fact that before he has even over here, he's already costing me money, he's going to cost me sleep, he's going to give me headaches and gray hairs and everything, but he will never be able to love himself out of the parameters of my love. And if I, as an imperfect father, can embody what that looks like, can you imagine the God who so loved you that he bankrupted heaven and gave you his son so you could see what the ethos of love love given to a people in a generation looks like. And then he takes us and then he's like, I know y'all gonna screw it up. You know what I'm saying? You guys from Zimbabwe and Texas and SF. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my spirit. And when you step into the reality of my son, everything that the world needs is going to find perfect expression through you. You just have to believe it and let it flow through you. The perichoresis. God calls us this divine community and he calls us into that. And because He's a God that's always existed in community. Then we are people of community. We crave community. We cannot exist outside of community. Because remember, everything happens within self-contained systems and units. So that means everything that the world needs, everything that you need yourself, you will always find within community. That's why this church, beginning groups, is one of the most powerful things that you'll ever do. Because this aspect of church right here, right, this was not the divine construct. When the church was born, the sociology of the church was people did church in a circle around tables. There would come, somebody would bring this. Everybody brought mutual contribution, and that's how they did it. And when you guys are starting groups, that is essentially what that looks like. You just gather here to get replenished, and then you go out there and you live in what that looks like. But culture, and exacerbated by 2020, have made us a people of boxes. I was talking to David Kinnaman from Barna, and I was like, man, how would, you, um, how would you describe what happened in 2020? I was like, man, if it was anything, I would call that generation, the generation that had prominence around 2020, as the boxed-in generation. Boxes. Everybody say boxes. We are obsessed with boxes. I mean, if you think about it right now, let me paint a picture for the rest of your day. I mean, um, so you woke up in an apartment or a house. I'm going to use boxes and squares interchangeably. You woke up in a, in, in a box, right? You crawled out of a bed, which looks like a box. You went to the closet, right? And you open it, which looks like a box. And then you jumped into the bathroom, which is another box, right? And you put your clothes on and you looked at a mirror, right? Which is, uh, except if you're bohemian and everything, which is a box, right? And then you jumped into a car, which is essentially a box. And you drove here into this building, which is essentially a box. You came in through doors that look like a box and you're sitting over here and everything in boxes and kind of like it's what it is right if it wasn't for the game today which is also played in a box you would go somewhere and if you're single you'd be like hey you know what i saw someone at church hey can we exchange numbers you take their number and put it in a little square or box cell phone and then you'd be like when you get home and you have nothing to do you would hit them up and you're like hey can we meet at a restaurant which is what another box right and then you would jump into your car whatever that looks like except if it's a prius and if you if you drive a prius you deserve to be alone but anyways <laughs> you would drive to that restaurant and you'd open up and the waiter would be like, okay, what do you want to sit? Do you want a booth or a table? Which is box or box? And you'd say box. So you sit down and either they give you a box menu or they give you a square QR code and then you scan it and bring your food out and then you eat. And when you're done, not finishing what you do, you ask for a to go 
box, right? And then you take that box, and then you go down, and then you're just like, hey, I'm going home, and then you sit down in a square couch or whatever that looks like, and you watch and zone out to watch your box TV. And later on, when you get the munchies, you go back, you open your food box, which is a refrigerator, you take that box, you pop it in a box microwave, and... You eat your food. And if that day turns into something, then you meet that person, and then you guys get married, and then you crawl into another box, and you become fruitful and multiply, and then you crawl out of that box, and there's a baby you take him, you put him in a crib, and it goes on and on and on. And his reward for prominence within the culture is he just gets bigger boxes and boxes until he gets the corner office. And then after that, it's pretty downhill. Then he downsizes it, downsizes it, downsizes it, until his life ends in a six-foot box when they lower him to the ground. We are culturally obsessed with boxes, right? And what's crazy about that is something that's called ontological design. Our spaces, we design our spaces, and our spaces design us. If you want to inform behavior, right? For example, if you want to foster community in an office space, what all you need to do is put a water cooler and a tracking device. No, I'm kidding, right? You put a water cooler and people will gather and rally around that because our behavior happens around spaces. So when we have created a Boston generation, do you guys understand the subconscious messaging and the value systems that we're giving to people? That if you sit at the head of this table, then you are the most powerful person there is. And I still remember when I came here, I could never get this. I could never get this because where I came from, which is rural by means and everything, I came from the village in Africa, it was very different because everything around that was circles. That's what I saw around me, circles. It is the design of nature. What happens when you agitate nature? When you take a pebble and you throw it in the middle of of water, what happens? Ripples, circles, right? When you cut a tree and you look at a cross-section of, of tree, like it's rings. When you look at seashells and everything, everything about nature happens around circles. I mean, check this thing out. Like when everything about it, like when you cut open from apples those designs to the way the continents are set up, right? To where like the waves, the spiral, naturally occurring phenomenon happens around the circle. It's what mathematicians geek out over the Fibonacci sequence. I don't have time to go into that, right? And it goes into, and if you go to the next one, it's like even the things that come to the human thing, from the shape of the ear, right, the DNA and everything, it follows this weird circle shape that if you kind of think about it. What I love about this is even when you go to the, from the, from the infinitesimal, like when you go from, from micro to macro, you see the exact same thing. I love that. The brand sale, right? The dendrites when they start in the universe. It's the same kind of secular design and everything. The birth of a cell and the death of a star, right? Small to whatever. It kind of follows this weird design, right? When you look at the eye and the nebula, it all follows this weird design. Where does this weird design come from? And so I was asking the Lord, and this was one of those things I kick out on because that's essentially what I do. And so I went back and I'm like, Lord, what is the strategy for unifying this generation? What do I do with the upper room? How do we bring unity around this? And remember, he told me, hey, look up. And I understood why I took you to the book of Genesis because if you want to understand anything, you have to go back to the beginning. So he said, look at your cradling context. Where do you come from? How is It formed. So back to Revelation 5, verse 6 to 14. And I want to get, show you guys a diagram, right? 
Let's read that scripture again. It says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. So I'm an illustration guy. I'm a visual guy, right? So basically, let's draw it. So right in the center, right, is a, a lamb that's a crown. Y'all, listen, I, I could be Banksy, y'all. This is African Banksy on y'all right here. So bear with me, right? It says, then I saw a lamb looking at, as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. So if there's a throne there, there's a center, and the lamb is right there, right? You guys tracking with me? Of the throne. And if you can throw up that scripture up there so they don't think I'm making it up, right? Revelation 5, verse 6 to 14 again. Then I saw a lamb looking at everything, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the what? The four living creatures. One, two, three, and four, right? And then it says, and the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, and it goes on. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before. So there's the four living creatures, and then there's 24 elders around them, basically, right? And then afterwards, it goes on, and it says, each one had a harp, and they were doing worship, and they were saying, you are worthy, and they will reign. And then we go down. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, right, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 upon 10,000, and they encircled. Everybody say encircled. So there's thousands upon thousands upon 10,000 upon 10,000, and they encircled this throne with the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And so basically, if you are in the cradle where your creation happened in the throne room, and you, you draw it out, and you zoom in, and you look at this upward perspective, what you are going to see is the simple pattern that essentially marks all of nature. The circles come from the simple fact that in the throne room, all of nature gets its blueprint and its pattern from this, the natural order of the throne room. And from that place, we're created. And from that place, creation springs forth. And it's, going, it's almost like God speaks these things and it's like, okay, what's the blueprint? What's the blueprint? Oh, you know what? We'll just match the blueprint of where we come from, where we exist. And that's essentially what it looks like. And that's why everything about nature speaks to the circles. So I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, Lord, what is the strategy? And he says, go deeper, right? He says, take the blueprint of nature and redeem my generation. And then he led me to, to Psalms 23, verse 5 to 6. And this is why I want to land this with you guys today. And this is a psalmist. And basically he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me in all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. See, I understood coming from an African context that the table is not square. The table is a naturally occurring phenomenon, and the table is round. That's how most cultural societies evolved. There was always something in the middle. In my African context, the Bantu context, it's a fire. And all conversation happens around the fire, and people sit around it. And, uh, and, 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 and it could technically be called a table because that's where it's discussed. But there's a fire in the middle, and we all see this. And the beauty about that cyclical aspect of it is the fact that there's transparency. On this side, I can see that other person, and it communicates equality, and everybody is gathered around that. What matters, the table is a naturally occurring phenomenon. And the only thing that matters is what is at the center of that table. Because the culture of the host determines the culture of that particular table. Life happens around the table. It is what we're created to do. It is the most naturally occurring phenomenon. Where do we get boxes from? It's when you take a circle and you truncate it and you put up walls around it. And that's basically essentially what it is. 
But when you look at it, something which I thought was uh, really cool, Rachel Ross from Mandela Home said this, the oldest form of indigenous shelter was always round in shape. Think of the Navajo Hogan, the Mongolian yurt, North American teepee, the South African crawl, the Greek tenemos, among others. Why did our ancestors choose to build round? Because the ovoid shape, eggs, earth, tree trunks, and stones is what they saw reflected in the surrounding natural environments. When you come to the table and use this blueprint, you see that the lamb slain is at the center of it. Then you have no problem talking about unity because that is the nature of the host of that particular table. Right? I like what uh, Philip McQuart said on the Trail of the Last Supper, which is a phenomenal journal article. You can get it if you Google it. But he says, even the rectangular shape of the table and the placement of the sitters along one side, he was talking about the Last Supper. You guys have seen that. Everyone's on the one side, right? Uh, Leonardo's, not DiCaprio, the other one, right? He says, is an anachronism. This issue, prosaic as my sound, tends to assume some significance in later Last Supper representations. So it is appropriate at this point to consider it in some detail. In virtually all depictions of the Last Supper before the 12th century, the table is round or D-shaped. This shape was seen as embodying a special element of fraternal fellowship. It also corresponded more closely with the Jewish practice of combating Passover meals around low tables or no tables at all, with the diners semi-reclining on low lounges. And in contrast, the long table shown by Leonardo was not commonly used for meals until the Middle Ages. Furthermore, even after it had been adopted, the practice of sitting diners along one side with servants attending to their duties from the other side was reserved for particularly wealthy households. Hardly a likely scenario for Jesus and all his apostles. Y'all, the throne room is cyclical. Nature, the very nature of God mirrored from the throne room and the world around us is cyclical. And God calls us wherever we go. Not just to build tables, but to redeem the truth and the power of the table. And my statement to you is, is this. The essence of redemption, which is our function. Remember, we're made in the form of God to execute the function of God. Our function is bringing life back to the table. What does it look like? It's the most organic thing in the world. I still remember when I first found out we're, we're going to be pregnant, we're at an event with Dave, and we're just sitting and having conversation, and, and there's all this crazy anxiety because I'm like, over here, I'm a seven, like, my life is over. I'll never travel again. I'll just be shackled to this baby. And what if he turns into the next Darth Vader or whatever it is? And so I'm having all these anxious thoughts. And so I tell Dave, and Dave just, oh, my goodness, bro, you are going to love this. He says, it's the best thing you're ever going to do, man. It's like, forget the challenges. Everything that's hard has its challenges. That's the beauty of it. Doesn't that sound like a reality pastor? It's like, where's the hard? Yeah, let's have fun there. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, but he was like, everything that's hard is like, just focus on this. He starts to tell me all these stories, right, about um, now. And, and he starts to talk about all the joy that he kind of brings and everything. And because he's a proud and loving father, he can't do that. But what he doesn't know is that he's violently apprehending all of the insecurities that I have about being a father and modeling the goodness of a good father. And basically, right there, he starts to set a table for me. What am I talking about? Remember what the book of Psalms says. It says, you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My anxiety was my enemy. I was afraid because I knew that the insecurities of one generation are passed on as the value systems of the next. And I don't want to pass that on to my son. 
but without even knowing it, right? In the presence of my enemies, all those things screaming at me, right? He just begins to set a table. And he puts the goodness of God and the love of God in the middle. And he invites me into that table. And I begin to feast on God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And as you guys embark on something, which is called groups, I want you guys to know this at a fundamental level. It doesn't have to be weird or complicated. But that every single person is in the presence of their enemy right now. There's something speaking to them, something haunting them, something speaking to the diminished imago day on the inside of them. And you show up on, on a, after a work day, and maybe you're tired or whatever that looks like. And whether you're an introvert or extrovert, it doesn't matter, right? You lean into that. And that person is talking, but maybe they're talking the thing that's bothering them. You've done like 10, 10 times or five times. Maybe you're just like, oh, bro, don't even worry about it. You know what just happened? You just set a table for them. That's what we're called to do. Because the adverse is also true. If God sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies, the enemy will sneak into God's presence and set a table for you and cause you to come and dine on the insecurities and all the issues and all the problems. And what I want to say is this very simple thing that God has always existed in community and he is using you as an aspect and an expression of his community. Redemption happens around the table. Reconciliation happens around the table. On the road to Emmaus, revelation happens around the table. Jesus was talking to them over and over about himself in his opening scriptures and they didn't know him, but it's only when they got to the table and he broke the bread that they, it was revealed. It's at the table that the true nature of someone is revealed. I love that. I was just standing over there in worship and Tariq comes up and is like, hey, next time you're here, man, you can stay with us. And what did he do? He just set a table. So here's what I'd love for us to do. I'd just like to ask for, for us to ask the Lord for the grace to set tables to bring life back to the table, to redeem the image of God in other people through the table, to press through the discomfort of our tiny apartments and all the issues that come with hosting a table, and to invite people into what that looks like. If you guys don't mind, it might not even necessarily be how you do it, but could you stand up with me just as a moment of silence? And I just want you to, uh, to close your eyes with me if you don't mind, and I'm going to have my brother from the prayer team come up and lead us, but I'm going to launch us off, and the launch pad is very simple. It's like, Lord, bring us to the table. If you don't mind, could you just close your eyes, not to be weird or anything, but just to kind of be in a space with your father? Listen, people are messy. And anytime you eat at a table family style, it's going to be messy. And sometimes we avoid the mess because we have our perfect little world. But sometimes the Lord calls us to set tables, but sometimes we show up to tables and we find that they've been set for us. So I just want you to speak to your father right now and just pray for the grace, the simple grace to once again let yourself be free to the power of the table. Just for God to give you the grace to once more see people through his redemptive eyes. Just speak to your father right now and say, Father, give me the grace that as these groups begin at reality, that you'd give me the means, the ability the social graces, to see people as you see them and to set these tables. And I promise you the testimonies that will happen around the table are going to be, they're going to blow your mind because our God shows up at tables. So Father, I just come before and I commit every single person in this room into your hands. 
I pray that you'd redeem our blueprint of what community and family looks like, that once more you'd bring us back to the table. Give them this grace, oh God. In Jesus' name.